Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base. So turning your Bibles to Acts 17, 16 to 23, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Christ and the Philosophers. I find the Greek world into which the gospel went to be a fascinating world indeed. We notice that when Paul arrived in Philippi, in what was then the Greek province of Macedonia, that the primary issue he faced was the relationship of Christ to Caesar and the wider political Roman power politics. And there the charge was brought against Paul that, that he was advocating customs that were not lawful for Romans to accept. Everything from Greek religion to Roman laws were at stake. Was there room for Jesus in a place like that? And the answer seems most clearly, yes, yes, there was. Men and women in Philippi desperately needed the message of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that he brought. And of course, there was a price to pay. And then he went to Thessalonica and then to Berea. And there the issue was the relationship of Christ to Judaism. Of course, in Thessalonica, the charge was made that Paul and his team were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that Christ was Lord and not giving reference to the supposed lordship of Caesar. Again, the issue of politics, but it was also the issue of the relationship between the Christian faith and Judaism. Does the Christian faith destroy the custom of the Jews? Is it an attack against Judaism? And of course, it's not. Forgiveness of sins, faith in God, the freedom of the gospel, going to Gentiles without demanding that they be circumcised, that wasn't an attack against Judaism. Indeed, just like the Greeks and the Romans, the Jews also need Christ. And the grace that Christ offers to them is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. But now that Paul and his team have established churches in Philippi and in Thessalonica and Berea, And because of the hostile response from leading officials in Macedonia, it was deemed advisable to move Paul out of the Macedonian province and have him sail south to southern Greece or to the region that was then known as Achaia. He would wait there until Silas and Timothy completed their work in establishing the church in Berea. He went as far south as the famous city of Athens, the city that's the home of democracy, but it's also the city that was the home of Epicurus, of Aristotle, of Plato, of Socrates. What a world awaited him there. Is there room for Christ in a world of philosophy? And by the time that Paul arrived in Athens, the day of Athenian influence had waned. It was no longer the political and commercial capital of Greece. Those days were now behind them. The Romans had conquered the city in 146 BC. You know, Philippi, Thessalonica were much larger than Athens. And also, in Achaia, Corinth was the capital, not Greece. Athens, if there was anything there at the time of Paul, this was a city not of power and industry, but it was a city of the arts, of literature, of philosophy, of education, and of oratory. You know, in that sense, it still basked in the light of Greece's golden age back in the 5th and 4th centuries BC. Even so, Athens was small when Paul got there, probably a city of around 5,000 people, that was all. You know, as Paul arrives, he observes the culture and then he goes into action. But before he does, let's remind ourselves that Paul is not in any way educationally inferior to the people he encountered in that city. You know, in many ways, Paul would have felt comfortable there. It's because he was going to meet with professors and philosophers from the world's most renowned universities. And Paul was born in Tarsus. 
and had been educated in Jerusalem. And furthermore, he had gone back to Tarsus after his conversion. So let's reacquaint ourselves with that part of his life. And it's found in Acts 9, 28 to 30. And it says, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, that is the Greek Jews, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. See, the university in Tarsus taught Stoic philosophy. And I have no doubt that Paul encountered it and he would have known it very well. And so we have to assume that as he got to Athens, he wasn't a novice to the philosophies that were then popular in that city. For the man who entered into Athens, Paul, was not only a missionary and an evangelist, he was also an academic. Indeed, his training made him one of the elite academics of his day. And I make mention of that because in our day, we often think of evangelists and academics as two very different kinds of people. But Americans especially should remember that perhaps the greatest pastor and evangelist that country ever produced was Jonathan Edwards. You know, eventually he was appointed to become the president of Princeton. Edwards was conversant in the sciences. He was an outstanding linguist. He was also an able philosopher. And he was an outstanding Bible-believing, Bible-teaching pastor who led the church through the greatest revival in U.S. history. So let's get back to Paul arriving in Athens, awaiting for Silas and Timothy to eventually join him. We start with Acts 17, 16 to 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. We shouldn't read this account as if it's the first time Paul had ever encountered idols or a place of idol worship. I mean, he'd already seen that every place he had ministered. He had been very much aware of this in his pre-conversion life, where even as a faithful Jew, he would have been more than aware that the practice of idolatry and its influence was felt in many cities. But Athens was unlike anything he had ever encountered before. The description we have from the city, from the ancients who actually saw it, say that the marketplace was virtually lined with idols. One of the ancient writers says that Athens had some 30,000 gods and goddesses. I mean, did all of them have a statue? Well, I doubt it. But all ancient sources tell us that Athens had far more idols than it had people. Again, there was no place like this in the world. And our translation says that Paul's spirit was provoked. The Greek word that Luke uses to describe Paul's reaction is a word that indicates that, that Paul was infuriated at the sight of it. There was a storm in his spirit. Why? Because Paul knew very well what idols represented. He saw these idols plunged people into darkness and superstition. I mean, the fickle nature of these gods and goddesses brought untold oppression and cruelty into the lives of people. If Paul was moved by the demon-possessed girl who had followed him back in Philippi, imagine now how he felt about the moral and spiritual darkness that hung over this city because of these deities, deities that enslaved their followers and wasted their lives. But rather than breaking from this pattern, he followed the pattern he utilized everywhere. He begins in the synagogue in Athens, and he reasons from the scripture there, patiently and carefully going through the messianic text of the Old Testament and proved that Jesus had fulfilled the hope and longing of the entire scripture. 
But Luke also tells us that he also used his time to go into the marketplace. So what did he do there? Well, Athens had an agora, which other Greek cities had as well. And these were open spaces that allowed for people to gather as well as assemble. And it was in the agora that the civic leaders would meet. And here, magistrates would hear court cases and the Senate would meet. They'd discuss political matters. But this was also the place where anyone with new ideas would be given a platform to discuss those ideas, especially when they were new. I mean, after all, this was a university town. And that's where Paul would engage people in dialogue. And the indication here is that he engaged anyone who would listen to him. So let's keep reading, Acts 17, 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So let's identify the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans were mostly materialists, and I say mostly because they weren't actually atheists because they did believe in the existence of the gods. But they believed the gods were not even slightly interested in humanity. See, they were mostly materialists, for they believed that once you died, that your soul would die alongside of your body. And so for them, the goal in life was to get as much pleasure as you could in this life and avoid as much pain as you could. And then there were the Stoics. They believed in divine providence. The gods actually dictated your life. It was fate. Your only hope in life was to submit to your lot in life. They also believed that there was a divine principle that was present in all nature and all human beings. This spark of divinity in everything gave the universal brotherhood of all people. But their belief in fate also inspired them to learn moderation in everything the idea that one was not to allow emotion to gain ascendancy in life, but to accept both grief and pleasure with the same balanced, moderate perspective. Some of them, when they heard Paul, called him a babbler. That word likens Paul to a bird who indiscriminately pokes at any seed it finds without discriminating its value and then simply passes on what's heard. How do you preach Christ when that's what they think of you? There is a moral decline in our society. A Christ-centered way of living no longer seems to be the norm. Without the truths of the Bible influencing our culture, this decay will only worsen. But there's hope and there is opportunity. God has called Christians to be salt and light. That is why this month, Back to the Bible Canada, is pleased to make a new booklet entitled 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change available to all who would request it for free. The content of this book comes from Dr. Newfeld's audio series, An Alternative Lifestyle, and presents 10 concise but powerful ways we can all affect change in the world around us. To request your free copy today, and to learn how you can help bring light to a broken world, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I have found that almost no one can be as condescending as an academic. Of course, I don't mean all academics. Of course, there are scholars who are genuinely humble, who don't use their education as license for feelings of superiority. Instead, these humble academics are people who love to learn, 
who have a genuinely inquisitive mind and who long to help others learn as well. But there are still other academics who give off an air of superiority that smells very much like the manure pit in the farm I was raised in. They're literally dripping with condescension. You know, if you've not been educated in their institutions, if you haven't attained to the same degrees they possess, they think it's an imposition to even speak with you. Whenever they use illustrations, they usually speak of the ignorance of others and the foolish things they've had to suffer to hear from the mouths of others. So what is this babbler saying, they say of Paul? It means, what is this man who has picked up a little bit of information here and there without knowing how to weigh the information he receives, yet he thinks he can now instruct others, and with that they simply walk away? But, says Luke, there were others who thought Paul was speaking about foreign deities, and since the city was already full of idols, one more deity was always welcome. Acts 17, 19 to 21. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So where did these scholars take Paul? Where is this Areopagus? Well, the Greek is somewhat unclear, and here I simply mean it's unclear whether Paul was taken to the actual court that was conducted there to present his views, or whether he's simply taken to that outcropping of a rock in the city, a hill dedicated to the god Mars, where all manner of public discussions were done. That's why this hill was often called Mars Hill. And if you've been in Athens, you'll know that that hill is actually right under the very famous Acropolis. At any rate, it seems clear that Paul was taken to the hill where famous scholars from the city would discuss and debate things. It was an informal meeting of the who's who, where he was asked to give his views and then also would have been asked to take questions and hear the critiques from scholars. One of the functions of that place is to supervise knowledge and education as well as controlling visiting lecturers. I mean, before those visitors could be given any more access to the public, and you'd have to know whether the message was harmless or whether it constituted a threat to the state and to good order. And so one of the scholars would have started, may we know this new teaching you are presenting. And of course, behind that is the statement that they're going to evaluate the merit or the danger of what Paul is teaching. I mean, who's this man? They want to know it. And why is he here? And then Luke adds something. It's almost a parenthetical statement. All the Athenians, he said, and all the foreigners who live there do absolutely nothing with their time but discuss new ideas. Now, that's the leisure of the academic. I mean, if Luke were, you know, around some of the universities of our day, especially uh, those scholars who work in the social sciences, I have no doubt he would have said the same thing today. But here I hope you see the irony. They want the latest thing. For that's all they know of what Paul is saying. I mean, remember, there's a synagogue in their city. And apparently these scholars had no knowledge of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses, of David, and the promise that one day the chosen one of Israel would appear and usher in an eternal kingdom for the world. They knew nothing of the Red Sea. They knew nothing of the walls of Jericho falling down. They knew nothing of Sennacherib surrounding the city of Jerusalem only to meet the angel of death. They knew nothing of Daniel's lion's den in the kingdom of Persia. You know, all they know, this guy seems to be teaching something new. You know, but there's a wonderful opportunity in Luke's statement. These guys did nothing but talk about the latest ideas, and it was a God-given opportunity. It is today as well. 
you know, Christian students going to secular universities, there's an opportunity for you, but only if you're equipped to know how to handle the scriptures and the deep truths of your faith. If you're a high school grad, my recommendation is to go to an excellent in-depth Bible college, get deeply into your faith, and then go off to university, and then watch the opportunities that the Holy Spirit opens up to you. But if you go to university and are fairly biblically illiterate and don't know the issues, I suspect the university is going to cause you to stumble in your faith. Well, very good. Let's see how Paul responds to the opportunity that's granted to him, verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, this is merely the beginning of the speech that Paul is going to make, but it's very important to think of the beginning statements. Let me explain. What do you say when asked to explain yourself to a group of people who have no knowledge of the Bible or of the saving news of Jesus or of the ways of the one and true and living God? What do you say when people who don't know the Bible don't know the historic background out of which it comes or the evidence for its authenticity? What do you say when people simply assume that the Bible is a collection of wise sayings from prophets and therefore it's not much different from any other religion? I mean, what then? I have known Christians who, when they are among people who have no frame of reference for the Christian faith, simply quote the Bible. Now that approach, I fear, is often lost on the hearer, whose frame of reference is so different from that of a Christian. As an example, I once had a conversation with a seminary professor who said he was engaged in a conversation with a secular university professor. She was a woman. She said, I can't actually believe that there are people left in the enlightened West who still think that sex out of marriage is immoral. I thought all of you people had died out hundreds of years ago. Yet what does one say when the person who's speaking shares no frame of reference with you at all? I think Paul's approach here is wonderful. I remember earlier, Luke was told that Paul was provoked in his spirit by the idols in the city. I mean, for those who don't seek to look for some common frame of reference for a dialogue, you know, Paul should have started by quoting passages in Scripture that condemn the practice of idolatry, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he uses the reality of the idols to affirm the reality of the human search for the divine. Look at it this way. All human beings, no matter language or culture, or time period in which they live, or the religion they follow, or the lack of religion in their lives, all human beings have one thing in common. Whether they know it or not, they are created in the image of God. As image bearers of God, there's a quest within each human being to connect with God. But because of sin, it's become twisted and obscured. But even so, we have a need to worship something, to honor something that's infinitely greater than we are. And Paul, even though he's provoked by the idols of Athens, also realizes that idols will always inhabit the thinking of the fallen image bearer of God. We're reaching out to God, even though we reach out to that which is not God. But Paul has been learning since he entered Athens. He knows that among all the idols he has observed, and yeah, he did take note of the various idols and the religious systems they represented. He wanted to know who the Athenians were. And among all those idols, he noticed a sign to the unknown God. 
It told him that the Athenians, in spite of the multiplicity of their gods and goddesses, either knew they hadn't covered all their bases, or more than that, they were testifying that there was so much about the gods they simply didn't know. And think again about the difference between the philosophies of the Epicureans and the Stoics. See, the Epicureans viewed the gods as far off and unconcerned with human needs. Uh, And on the other hand, the Stoics, although the gods ruled every event, that human beings simply had to learn with whatever the gods dumped out onto your life, be emotionally serene, no matter how the gods and goddesses treat you. See, I'm making the point that the Athenians knew that they had no consensus concerning the gods. They had no authoritative final word about the gods. They were, as it were, groping around in darkness, and Paul also knew that. And so he makes a bold move. What you worship as unknown, he says, where your knowledge of the divine has broken down right there in that very darkness, I'm going to shed some light. I'm going to tell you about the God you know is there, but whom you have also testified you don't know. Anyone observant would have perceived in a second that Paul's approach was different than any other philosophy. Whereas the Greeks sought to learn about the gods, Paul was saying that God had revealed himself to us. Paul says, I'm going to tell you about that. And suddenly, there was a place for Jesus in the academic halls of the philosopher. There still is today. Thanks for your message, John. You know, we've talked about this before together, but do you believe there's really a merit for Christian young people to consider attending a college deeply rooted in Scripture even for a semester or a year prior to attending a public university or college? Yeah, I would say that when you go to a a, a Christian Bible school or Bible college, make sure you choose well. Uh, Make sure that they're grounded firmly in Scripture and in the gospel and are not playing with, you know, liberal ideas or simply don't have a gospel awareness. So get yourself all the information that you can so that when you go to university and find your faith attacked, you've got something that you can draw from. If not, woe be to you. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations, it's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, its broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. This year, we're excited to share that Truth and Life will have a unique discipleship focus. Each issue will highlight a different marker of discipleship. We trust that each of the elements of discipleship explored this year will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission of providing trustworthy Bible teaching. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, Visit us at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.